listeners, welcome to Standout Podcast with Natalia Brzezinski. I'm so excited to be interviewing Cindy Levy, editor-in-chief of Glamour Magazine, in her fantastic office in the Condé Nast building, an office where she herself frequently interviews some of the world's most powerful women. Cindy has been an icon for me in the way she has used fashion as a platform for empowering women. Glamour's Woman of the Year Award brings together the most inspiring women from around the world annually, and the magazine is constantly highlighting unique stories about women and rejecting impossible ideals of perfection. She's also a high school classmate of my husband's and grew up in the same town of McLean, Virginia, as the daughter of a scientist single mother. Stay tuned for this episode of Standout, where I talk happy marriages, raising daughters, balancing work and life, and try to find out more about my husband's high school secrets in this episode of Stand Out. You are perfect because, I mean, I think that, I hate this term, it's a little bit cliche, but you use your platform for something. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I was looking at your Instagram and we were both, I was at the H&M Bauman last night. I have a lot of friends at H&M, yeah. And I was just sitting there with the creative director and I said, like, you know, it makes me feel in a funny way so old to see, you know, I saw Kendall Jenner and yeah. these. But even for me, I feel, you know, fashion has such a platform, actually. I mm-hmm. mean, digitally, more than any other sector, it has millions of followers. And, you know, these young models have millions of followers online yeah. and they're young girls. They're the people we want to affect. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, what I would love to get your perspective on is, do you think that the fashion world is maximizing this? Is is there something more that we can do or that, how do you view that responsibility? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I don't, I don't look at it in, in terms really of what responsibility does the fashion industry have? I mean, we're all, you know, we're all humans, no matter what industry we're in. And everybody, I think, has a personal responsibility to the people around them, to the world around them, to the things that they care about. If you look at fashion specifically, you know, it does tend even now to value youth. And I think, you know, there are a lot of young people with really major platforms, really major audiences, 40 million followers on Instagram. You know, is it fair to say to that person, you have to use your your platform for good? I mean, in some cases, these are like 18-year-old kids. They're just figuring themselves out. I'm not sure that they need to be huge role models, although it's amazing and beautiful when they are. You know, I do think fashion has a responsibility in general, as any other major industry, to try to act responsibly, to try to affect people in ways that are positive or at least not destructive. You know, I think there's increasing awareness around sustainability in fashion Mm -hmm. because the, you know, the carbon footprint of the fashion Mm -hmm. industry is pretty significant and a lot of young people are looking that and saying, okay, well, how can I make my daily choices if I'm somebody who likes clothing in a way that's a little bit more responsible? I do think, you know, as as a lot of young people have noted, you know, when fashion is is very happily multicultural and embraces women and men of different backgrounds and ethnicities and body shapes, then that's a real force for good too. Um, you know, there was a great movie last year by 
uh, produced by Livia first. Oh, I thought true cost, yes. True cost about, you know, about the ways in which fashion, the fashion industry can kind of wreak havoc, um, mm. you know, particularly. Especially um, on women. Yeah. Actually, that was a big focus. Yeah, on women workers. Women and daughters and, and, so and I think, You know, I think fashion has a responsibility to try to look at those issues and not just keep doing things the way they've always been done. And I think, but I think that's true of any big industry. It's not particular to fashion. And I think that increasingly it's consumer who are going to make that happen. You know, it's the audience who, mm. you know, who wants to feel good about the labels that they're putting on their body and the brands they're associating themselves with. So that person who's buying a dress has a lot of power. How do you frame it? And I see this personally as someone that I I love fashion. I always have. I, I'm working with it in some ways now. But I have a six-year-old daughter as well. And, you know, I've watched some friends that, you know, own modeling agencies or, you know, they really go through this moral kind of cycle. Because I remember as a child, Christy, Linda, they were not Kate Moss type Mm -hmm. women. And even though we're trying to put less of a focus on youth, you see kind of Joan Didion, you know, these these different Celine doing a campaign with a woman in her 80s. But it is still very youth obsessed. It is beauty obsessed. And, you know, how do you kind of as a woman and a mother bridge that gap with glamour? Do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think about it all the time because I personally believe, you know, I think women love fashion in the broad sense of the word. You know, we all we love to adorn ourselves. It's also a way that you express yourself. I think you want to tell the world who you are by what you put on your body and how you play with your clothes and how you style yourself every day. And that's fun. And I mean, I'm certainly not of the mind that you can't be a serious, you know, woman and also have a lot of interest in fashion. I mean, you know, most of the women I know are able to talk about shoes and talk about issues of substance at the dinner table every night. That's just, you know, that's real life. So I think, you know, women love fashion, most women, not all women, um, as a way of expressing themselves. And I think, you know, it's just important not to confuse that with a certain type of body that you might see more of, you know, on the runway or a certain particular image. I mean, fashion is about so much more than that. It's about, you know, it's about beautiful things and expressing who you are and putting things together in a way that is original. Um, you know, probably the most important, I mean, I'm, I'm, I do think that we have a responsibility as a magazine to show a broad range of types of women and, um, you know, show people playing with fashion in ways that aren't just sort of dictated by one ideal. But I also think we all have personal responsibility. I mean, you know, if you have a daughter and I have a daughter, I feel like as important as it is what my magazine says, it's more important how I act in front of my daughter every day, right? So, you know, I think... For, for women, and I talk about this a lot with my, you know, my female friends, and I hear about it from our readers too, you know, it does make a difference when you don't say like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm too big to fit into those pants. I can't, you know, I'm having a fat day. I can't wear that skirt. Mm. Guess what? Like, it's your skirt that doesn't fit you. It's not you that, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. I think the more we can be conscious of those kinds of habits in our own lives, and particularly, you know, if you're around girls, that those are the most important messages. Um, you know, again, not in any way demeaning the, you know, the importance of images that you see in magazines or, or ad campaigns. But, you know, if you can have a, you know, a, a playful, positive, fun appreciation of fashion that isn't about anxiety over not being thin enough or not being whatever enough, 
you know, if you can just, if you can just sort of revel in it and have fun with it, as opposed to trying to capitulate to its demands, mm. I think that is powerful to girls. And how do you speak to your daughter? And I say this with the full preface and pretext that it's, you know, I love to get advice from women like you for myself, for how I speak to my daughter, because she, we lived in Sweden and um, I mentioned that Sweden is a very, very gender equal place. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all believe in equality, but, you know, men take paternity leave, women take maternity leave. They, the, the government has declared a feminist foreign policy. I mean, people, men do the most, like there's the least gap in the hours of work done in the house between men and women than anywhere in the world. So, you know, you see men kind of in traditionally female roles and we've just moved back. And now at six, you know, she was there from age two to six. So very formative time. And she comes back and, and she really questions, mm -hmm. like, why are there no male teachers in my school? Mm -hmm. Not one. Mm -hmm. Why are there no male doctors, like in the nurses, when we go to the pediatrician? You know, right. we were sitting in church, and, and this kind of killed me too. And the priest that was giving the homily, and he said, "Let's talk about gratitude today, little girls and boys. You should be very, very grateful that your daddies wake up really early and go out to work to bring home money. You should be really grateful." That Wait, your what moms, year is this? Yeah. No, no. I mean, and this is a big diocese in Washington. Yeah. You should be really grateful that your moms and your stay home and keep the home nice and clean and cook a great dinner at the end of the day. <laughs> and But the other kids were kind this of bishop like... bishop would be very disappointed I mean, in my house. <laughs> yeah. But my daughter, and maybe I say like, thank God, you know, but she, she came home and she said, what is he? You work. And, you know, so-and-so's mom works and sweet, you know, and so I come back and I still see that we are in many ways quite traditional. Yes, this is New York and especially in the fashion world. Yeah. There's a lot of women in power, but not really, you know, farther down Wall Street yeah. do you see that. And I just wonder, you know, what advice do you have? Because sometimes I go the other extreme and I'm like, you cannot be a princess for Halloween, you know, and I have that whole, yeah. let's not promote the princess pink fashion. Do you really like fashion? But then I like, look at me, you know, my Louboutins. How do you do that? Like maintain authenticity, but also kind of try to well, not be super traditional when it comes to gender. I mean, I think it sounds like you are doing that already <laughs> because you're encouraging your daughter to question. And that's probably the most important thing. I mean, it's not like there's nothing wrong with liking pink. Yes. And for that matter, you know, to use the the you know, the bishop or the minister's example in the story you were just saying, there's nothing wrong with being a no. stay-home parent. Like that is, you know, it's, it's certainly being the lead parent, whether you stay home or not, is an incredibly demanding and important Absolutely. role. So I think it's more just, you know, encouraging girls to question, well, why is it always this way for boys or why is it always this way for girls? And P.S., like, I think girls are way ahead of where their older sisters and their their moms are. I mean, one of the classic stories about my daughter is that we were listening to the radio once in the car and that Michael Jackson song, The Girl Is Mine, Paul McCartney and Michael yeah. Jackson, The Girl Is Mine. No, she's mine. No, she's mine. And <laughs> my daughter from the back seat says, well, why can't the girl just make up her mind? <laughs> and I thought, okay, you don't really need my feminist lecturing about knowing your own mind. So, you know, I think they're ahead. But I, I think it's also just about, you know, not getting too doctrinaire about it, but inviting them to questions. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you know, my daughter was begging me whether she could shave her legs, you know, and she was like 11 when she started asking and then 12 when I finally, seeing that all her friends were doing it, decided to to let her 
do it, even though part of me is thinking, you know, why? There's nothing wrong with your body the the way it is. And I certainly don't want to have to have her start obsessing about physical beauty any earlier than, you know, than, than she needs to. And, um, you know, but instead I just, you know, I let her do it. But then we did have a conversation about like, why'd you ever think about that? Like why the boys in your school can walk around and they can be as hairy as they want. Like that is no problem for them. And they don't even give it a thought, you know, but girls have to spend all of this time. Like who made up those rules? And, you know, I sort of felt like in that situation, that was, uh, you know, as effective as was going to be helpful. So I think just in encouraging, you know, girls and boys to just you know, question these things. That's probably important. But but again, like a lot of them are way ahead of. So you're really the optimistic that I mean, do you think kind of even these questions will be obsolete in ten to twenty years? You well, know, will know my daughter be facing these? Issues? I don't. I don't know that they're going to be obsolete in ten or twenty years because in some cases you're talking about you know gender roles that have existed for thousands yes. and thousands of years. So like the rate of change is fast, but I don't think it's quite that fast. But I do think that you know girls now who have grown up playing sports with boys, mm. you know, being in classrooms where they're encouraged to have an equal voice with boys. I think they're often, you know, surprised when they get into their 20s and witness any kind of, you know, discrimination or like dumb caveman behavior. And they're often quite vocal about it. And social media, although it can be really challenging for girls in a, in a lot of ways, and I think for all of us as people, just, you know, it, it is increasingly challenging to try to find a quiet space where you can have a, a thought. Um, <laughs> but I think it can be good for girls to be able to just, you know, connect with other girls who are thinking along certain lines. And if you live in a really conservative or traditional community, it's still easy to connect with girls who live in other places and to kind of have, you know, this this group of girls or the sisterhood at, with you cheering you on um, as you're dealing with some of with some of this stuff. So I am I'm pretty optimistic. Yeah. Do you think, though, that um, the price of success is higher for women? This is something that Mika has written about, and, and you were interviewed in her book, and I, I loved kind of your your chapter and your input there. And, you know, one thing that Mika said that really resonated with me is her intro. And as someone that also has probably attended dozens, thousands, hundreds of women's conferences and read books and written essays, I think up until recently, it's starting to shift, but not that much. We often don't want to come out and say, yes, it's harder, or yes, mm -hmm. I fight every day for my voice, or yes, I've been divorced, it's because of this, because mm -hmm. my husband was threatened by my success or power. All of a sudden came a moment where I began to out-earn him or outpace him, mm -hmm. or I just blossomed, you know, I wasn't the second fiddle, whether it was in a marriage, in, in the family, in the office— it does seem to be a bit harder for us, yet no one really talks about it. I mean, I think it's, I don't know if it's harder. I think it's different probably for women than it is for men. Um, you know, I think for men, it, I, I think success can be, you know, challenging in its own way. I think for women, you know, they're all of the familiar problems where, you know, you're working crazy long hours, but then you're additionally expected to still be the lead parent on the home front. So you're like, you know, trying to deal with some huge crisis at work, but still also getting the first phone call if your kid has the flu at school and needs to, you know, and needs to go home. And, you know, some 
husbands don't necessarily want to be that lead parent, even if their wife has the busier job. And some wives, even if they have the busier job, don't necessarily want to delegate that to, you know, to their husband, you know, which is a problem in and of itself. I, I recently interviewed Anne-Marie Slaughter. I was just going to ask you about her. Yeah, she, she was amazing. And one of the things that she said is, you know, the way women talk about in a derogatory way about their husbands and their abilities at home. If men talked about women like that, women would be irate. They would think it was like incredible sexism. They would sue. Like, you know, yeah. so many women are saying to their husbands, you just, you don't, you don't know how to do this. I'm going to put this on your list of things to do. You've got to, you know, do the grocery shopping and pick up, you know, pick up the kids at school and deal with the flute lesson and, you know, get to the soccer practice, but I don't really trust you. So I'm going to write you a long meticulous list of things to do. And then I'm going to check on you throughout the day because I think you are that bad and that and it likely. Has to be my way. Yeah. And that's the other. And, you know, and, and I mean, if you got hired yeah. for a job and your boss said to you, okay, technically it's your job, but I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. I'm going to check up on you five times during the day, and then I'm going to berate you if you do it wrong. You have to do it exactly my way. You would be like, okay, fine. I quit. So, <laughs> you know, I do think it is on women to make it a little easier for men to do it, but then it's on men to feel comfortable doing it and, and um, you know, and not feel like it makes them any less of men. So I think it's, I think it's challenging, but I do feel like, you know, if, if we're hesitant to talk about it, some of that comes from, you know, a place that I identify with, which is, you know, it's still success. If you're talking about the price of success, that's still success. It may be a problem, but like, that's mm. a good problem to have. And particularly at this moment in our world economy, mm. you know, if you're lucky enough to be in a family where one person's income can actually support both of you, you know, it, it, I'm not saying it's always so easy, but in the scheme mm. of things, you're in a really good, you're in a good place. So I do understand the, hesi the hesitancy to, you know, start fetching about it. But speaking of and, and Anne-Marie Slaughter, I, rem I was abroad when her big article came out. Yeah. It was such, I mean, it really touched many nerves. Mm -hmm. And um, the question often kind of crystallizes down to, is it us or is it them? You know, is it society? Yes, I am. Number one, after living in a place where there's free daycare, maternity leave, one year, paternity leave, one year, job security, mm -hmm. I think we do have to change on the kind of government structural side. Mm -hmm. But I think what you just touched upon is, you know, how much is us? How much is, you know, women not working with each other, not supporting each other? How much is confidence? You know, the the title of this podcast is Stand Out. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I realized, you know, in Sweden, in Europe, there was kind of especially the Scandinavian countries, a bit of a cultural norm, don't mm -hmm. stand out. Same with Asian women. There's a similar saying in Japan culturally. Don't brag, don't promote yourself, don't be American that way. Mm -hmm. You know, we're such big talkers. And I saw very quickly that that was really, especially keeping the women down because mm -hmm. they have the gender norm of being the nice woman, not too aggressive, not too loud, and the cultural norm. But I think all women are a little held back when it comes to being able to promote themselves in a way that's effective like men do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still hard. And so I'd love to kind of hear your perspectives on, you know, one, you know, how how do you stand out? Hmm. Um, I don't know. That's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I do think to answer the first part of your question about like, them? is it us yeah. or is it them? I think it's obviously both, both. you yeah. know? I think that women need to assert themselves. And by that, I mean, not just 
flexing their work-related muscles and going and asking for the raise and all those things that, yes, they should do, but also being able to be vocal about the fact that family is important to them. I think, you know, I think a lot of women in a lot of workplaces, and I get it if you're the only woman at the office, are are hesitant to say, I'm leaving to go to the play, I'm leaving to go to the, you know, to the soccer game, because, you know, you don't want to be that woman who's skipping out or be seen as skipping out. But I do think that, you know, that hiding that if you're a man or a woman doesn't really do anybody any favors. So I think it's about, you know, being willing to be assertive and firm about everything that matters to you. Um, That's important. It's also important for companies to be accommodating of that and to have, you know, and to have their eyes open about how much better their business typically is if, if, you know, if women are well represented in their companies and, you know, certainly the statistics are there, like those companies with lots of women on their boards, they do better. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's good for everybody. It's good for, good for economies. Um, You know, but back to your personal question of how, how I stand out. I mean, I think, I, I guess just being aware of the ways in which, you know, as women, we sometimes hesitate to be firm and direct have been helpful to me. I've worked with a number of men who have been very clear, direct, firm, you know, no nonsense. And that's been helpful to me, you know, being able to look at those guys and say, okay, that was a really clear bit of direction that that guy just gave me. And that's what I want to do as a leader. So, um, and being able to see women do that as well with no negative repercussions. I think that's, I think that's been helpful. Um, You know, I think also just, you know, you spend a certain amount of time in, you know, in a particular industry or particular field, you just gain confidence Mm. about what you do. You, you know, you feel like, I mean, that's a great feeling to feel like I know what I'm doing. You know, I trust my instinct. I feel like I have a, you know, I have a good gut reaction. And the measure of, you know, the measure of my standing or my reputation is not just about today. It's about the balance of, you know, of my career. And I think, you know, as as women, I mean, really for anybody, but definitely for women, like, it's important to look back over the things you've achieved and, and give yourself credit for those. I mean, too often women are like, you know, you don't remember any of the great things that you've done and you just think about the, you know, that one meeting that you messed up yesterday. And I do think being able to get out of your head and, you know, and and resting on, realizing what your laurels are and then resting on them is probably helpful. What is it about you? What makes you be able to sit here today? I mean, what in your upbringing, because there has to be something along the way so many women fall out. You're in a very successful, powerful position. You are a leader or you are an executive. How did you get here? What do you think is the secret to your success? Is I the mean, cliche? What is it about <laughs> you? Are you, you know, I had a great interview yesterday and um, it was the Swedish minister of culture mm-hmm. and, and she's black and, mm-hmm. and, you know, growing up black in Sweden is not easy. Right. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm my worst critic, but I'm the best person also forgiving myself. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such an interesting comment. I've been thinking about it a lot. I mean, what do you do that makes you be able to have this moral, this courage or because there is a little bit of boldness. I mean, you're, I mean, I don't, I, thank you. I don't think of myself (laughs) like that at all. I mean, I think first of all, I just genuinely do really enjoy what I'm doing. So it's easy for me to compartmentalize a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like I, you know, if I've 
had a bad day or things aren't going well, like I can just get into the rhythm of what I'm doing, you know, meaning, you know, running a magazine, running a media brand, you know, talking to women online through our, whether it's through our social media or through the magazine. I just really, you know, I, 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 I like doing that. I'm interested in the issues. And so I find that absorbing and, you know, I, my mom was a biochemist and like the work couldn't be more different from what I'm doing. I mean, she would come home from work and sit at the dinner table and be talking to me about, you know, the centrifuge in the lab and lipopolysaccharides. <laughs> and, you know, I would be totally like tuning out and pretending I was listening to her, <laughs> you know, plotting my outfit for the next day. Um, but, but she must have but, really inspired you. But actually. I think what I saw of her when she was, you know, whether she was talking about her work or she was actually in the lab is she would just like get into the zone. I mean, it's that sense of what psychologists mm. called flow. And she just really enjoyed it. And listen, that's an incredible gift. If you actually can find something that you enjoy like that and you can and you can, you know, make money doing it and make it your career, that's really lucky. And it doesn't mean that every day is going to be like that. Like, you know. This, that old expression, I think I quoted it to Mika once on air, but, you know, if work were so great, the rich would keep it for themselves. Yeah. Like, it's not, you know, some days it's just work. It's just, you know, it's just a, a slog. But, you know, if you can have enough of those, like, great flow moments where you're just totally absorbed and you kind of feel like mm. secretly you would do it even if they weren't paying you, although they should pay you, mm. um, you know, then then I think that is helpful and it allows me to sort of you know, shut out whatever the negative distractions might be and just actually focus on, you know, on the work. I think passion absolutely is the driver. And you can overcome all the things of, you know, not being there every night sometimes or not being at every school event because you really love it. Mm -hmm. That being said, the work-life balance is difficult. And I think many women, you know, I have so many friends now 30, 31 in my age group that haven't had children yet that kind of are asking me because I, I had my daughter when I was I was pregnant at 24. She was born a month after my 25th birthday. And I was the only one in my peer group to have a child. Mm -hmm. And people were kind of like, wow, that's mm -hmm. weird. I mean, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And now they're coming to me like, how did you organize it? You know, how did you organize your life during those periods? Did you take time off? How long were you home? I mean, I, mean, I know it's really pragmatic, but yeah, these are the kinds of things I that think these things are so personal. I mean, I took next to no maternity leave with my first child. You know, in retrospect, I probably could have taken more maternity leave. It wasn't a financial thing. Were it was because worried? I was I was new in the job yes. and I just felt like I couldn't take that much time off. Um do you resent that? Not all? really, only because, I mean, it was the choice that I made, and yes. I'm not sure there's much good to anybody in my going back and, yeah. and trying to rethink it. I took I took more leave with my second child, and, you know, certainly my daughter is none the worse for it that I, you know, that, that I didn't take a long leave with her. And the reason I could make that choice was that my husband really took the role of, mm. you know, of lead parent then and, you know, and spent more time with, you know, with her. So I think if you have, you know, a spouse or a partner who, you know, is is willing to really split the load with you or more than split the load with you, that just makes everything much easier. And obviously not everybody has that, you know, that luxury, but um, it certainly you know, it, it means you're not just sort of like running around like crazy or feeling like you're in it alone all the time. So I think, I think that's helpful. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, other than, other than that, I mean, I think it's helpful to me that my mom worked when I was growing mm. up so that I actually, rem you know, first of all, I 
I learned how important work was in a woman's life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at moments when I might be feeling like, oh, my God, I missed the whatever. I missed the X. I missed, missed the Y. Um, you know, I do remember, okay, well, this was a gift that my mom gave me, the appreciation of mm -hmm. work. And hopefully, you know, in, in some way my kids are picking that up from me. Um, and, you know, and also, like, I, I was hard on my mom sometimes mm. when I was growing up. Like, I remember, you know, in eighth grade, like, pitching a fit to her because everybody else's mom was home when they would get home from work. And, like, in one case, there were even warm cookies being served. <laughs> and I remember coming home and saying, like, fair. why yeah. can't you serve warm cookies <laughs> like Diane McDonald's mom? <laughs> you know, my mom, to her credit, did not give me a long, uh. you know, lecture about how Diane McDonald's mom was probably not divorced and, you know, and didn't have a job. And she just said, okay, well, if you like warm cookies and, you know, we, she kind of talked through like how to operate the <laughs> microwave. <laughs> and by the next year, I had completely forgotten about it. And, you know, it was, it was, it was never an issue in my life, but I do remember actually saying that to her and, you know, I would remember with embarrassment that I had given my mom a hard time about this. But now if my kids give me a hard time, I do at least have a little perspective on the fact that, you know what, I think if you're, if you have kids, they're <laughs> probably going to beat you up about something once in a while. And, and that's okay. Well, thank you so much. Sure. This podcast is produced by ACAST with Sandra Moline as supervising producer and Carl Rosander as executive producer.